Welcome to the anointed and transformational teaching ministry of Pastor Wale Akinshiku, Senior Pastor of House of Praise Mississauga, Canada, a parish of the Redeemed Christian Church of God. It is our prayer that as you listen to this message, that you will be empowered to achieve your dreams and fulfill your destiny. God bless you as you listen. Father, we want to thank you. We want to honor you. There is no like you. Your ancient word is ever true. It's changing me. Glory to your holy name forevermore. We know you said I will do a new thing. What you're doing today is a new thing. You are the teacher. Teach us, Lord. Every single one of us, teach us. Let there be grass in the field for everyone. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, today's first series of lectures we're going to talk about is the title, The Holy Bible. What we want to do is, because the Bible is a textbook for us as Christians. So we want to first uh, dissect the Bible and talk about the Bible. So over this period when we talk about the Holy Bible, these are some of the things we're going to look at. Is the Bible, is it the Word of God? Many of us accept it that it is the Word of God and that's perfect. But we want to walk through to have an assurance why it is the Word of God. Many years ago, about 13 years ago actually, 13 years ago, I just finished teaching in our Believers Academy where we teach on understanding a new birth, you know, how to pray, you know, baptism in the Holy Spirit and a few topics like that, regular topics, you know, about the church and all of that. And as I finished speaking, uh, a young man woke up to me immediately afterwards. His parents are pastors at the Deeper Life Church. His parents, the pastors in the Deeper Life Church. Deeper Life Bible Church. And that's a great church led by a very, very great man of God, highly respected. But, but that's his parents. But he was sent to school here. Then he woke up to me and asked me a question nobody has ever asked me. And he said, Pastor, what do you say to some of us that don't really believe the Bible? Now that took me completely unawares, caught me completely unawares because I wasn't expecting anything like that. But it got me thinking that the assumption the average pastor makes is that everybody that they come across and come to church and everybody, they already believe in the Bible as the word of God. But we have to start from the foundation to see is this thing called the Bible 66 books and all the different type literary styles in it is it the word of God that's number one number two are the words in the Bible are they accurate and without error these are the things we're going to look at in this first three weeks are the words in the, of the Bible are they authoritative okay in other words, can we submit our entire lives to it and not regret it? Why does the Bible have 66 books? Why can't we add to it? Why can't we take away from it? <laughs> what about the other books that are, in, that are in circulation and that some people claim should be in the Bible? So what about those other books? Then this is a very important part. How do we interpret the Bible? Because many times, particularly among Pentecostals and Charismatics, you find somebody just says something and they run with it and say, well, it's in the Bible. But just because something is in the Bible does not mean it is what the Bible teaches. They're two different things. Because something is in the Bible does not mean that is what the Bible teaches as a doctrine. For example, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It is in the Bible. But the Bible does not 
teach that you should have 700 wives and 300 concubines. You see that? So how do we interpret the Bible? How can we understand this Bible and apply it to our lives? Something that was written some thousands of years ago. So these are some of the topics we're going to cover in this first element as we talk about the Holy Bible. Obviously, we will not be able to cover all of this today. But for today, I want us to go through this. Is the Bible the Word of God? Father, we thank you and we honor you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. The Bible is the starting point and the source of revelation of God to us. Christianity is based solely on the unshakable rock of the Holy Bible. The entire Christian faith stands or falls on the acceptance of the Bible as the word of God. If we don't accept, if we, we don't accept the Bible as the word of God, then the Christian faith will not stand. Okay? Now, this is the very important part. The Bible has what is called dual authorship. Somebody say dual authorship. All right. What dual authorship means is that there are, there are many authors in the Bible, and I will show you what that means now. But what it means is that this Bible was both written by man and at the same time written by God. Man is the author, God is the author. And I will explain to you what that means now, because this is a part of what confuses people, all right, as we go along in this life. So technically, this is the concept that is called dual authorship, okay? The Bible was written by men in their own language based on their own social background and their own present situation. So in the Bible, you'll find people that were in danger and they wrote at that time when they were in danger. You'll find people that have suffered losses, like Job, and he wrote as at that time when they had suffered, just suffered losses. You'll find people that were excited and celebratory and they would compose songs like the psalmist. You know, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 34. You will find that. You'll find people that are fighting in warfare and they will write. You'll find people in prison like Paul wrote from prison. You find people in palaces that wrote. So you, the Bible is written by men in their own language. However, the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired and guided them so that both the words and the message are without error or mistake. We're going to explore that very, very well later on. Okay, but for now, just take that. The words and the message are without error or mistake. Now, technically, you see, in the Bible, the message of the Bible, the message of the Bible is called, the message of the Bible is called revelation. The words that are used is called inspiration. The message is called revelation. The words that are used is called inspiration. I will explain it to you as we go along. But if you're writing, I just wanted to keep that in mind. All right. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men, so this is men of God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right. So dual authorship, men and Holy Spirit. All right. So if the Bible is not accepted as authoritative and accurate, we will never be committed to submitting to its authority in our lives. So that's why we need to know that. All right. If the Bible is not accepted as being entirely reliable, then you will, not be, you will never be able to develop faith and confidence in God to demonstrate its integrity to that word. So that's why we need to prove that. So in this at this point now, I want to let you know, the Bible is the word of God. Uh, we're going to set out to prove that in a few minutes. Um, the clicker. I think I, I must have pressed something wrong there. 
Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. So the Bible is authoritative, it is accurate, and it is reliable. We're going to go around and get to some of this today. The Bible is authoritative, it is accurate, and it's reliable. Now, let's ask ourselves this question. How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Listen carefully. How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? That's the cross of the matter for today. There are ten reasons given, okay, in Bible schools, in theology. Ten reasons that are given why the Bible is the Word of God. There are ten reasons given why the Bible is the Word of God. Listen carefully. These reasons that are given, usually when they are arranged, they are arranged from the most important to the least important of the ten. Each and every one of these ten reasons can stand on their own. They are all important. But normally when we talk about it, we talk about it from the most important one to the least important one. Are you still with me? You're looking a little bit terrified. <laughs> Don't worry, you're not going to write an exam. At least not today. So it's from the most important to the least important. So, but I want to do something now. I'm going to show you the number 10, the 10th one, which is the, it's not unimportant, it's just of the 10 is the least important. But the reason why I'm showing you the number 10, I'm going to talk about the number 10 first, then I'll start from number one. The reason why I'm talking about that is because it is the one that Pentecostals and Charismatics usually quote or speak of when they want to prove that the Bible is the word of God. That is what they usually hold on to. Most Pentecostals and Charismatics and Christians generally, when they want to talk about the fact that the Bible is the word of God, this is the reason they usually give until something happens. So reason number 10 is what is called the practical test of experience. The practical test of experience. And what this means is this. This is the practical impact the Bible has had on the life of a person who had believed the claims of the Bible as the word of God. So, so you were told the Bible is the word of God. If you put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. Christ will come to your heart. You're going to have peace. You will have peace with God. You will have joy. Christ in you will be the hope of glory. And you believe that. You believe the claims of the Bible. And you know what? Over the years, you've seen that that is true. You give your life to Christ, you have peace with God. You have joy in your heart. You know, your life has been changed. You're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Even people around you are telling you that, you know, your life is, your, your life is different. You look you're different. You know, the anger you used to have, you know, it used to be perhaps, you know, a volcano. Now, maybe it's, it's just a burning bush. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know, you've been, you been conformed to the image of Christ. You know, you mean your mind is not renewed, and day by day you're changing. So this is a practical, practical thing. So this is based on personal experience. So when you ask the average Christian, "Is the Bible the Word of God?" They tell you, "I know, I've experienced God, and there's nothing wrong in it, and it is valid." It just happens that of the ten reasons, it's number ten. Now, why it is so? Why it is number ten is this? This test of experience. It is because Psalm 34 verse 8 says, because that's what it's based on. It says, test and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So in other words, for you to see the Lord's good, you have to test. So, so when I test something, so you know, it's written on the, on, the, on the pack and everything. It says, oh, this is delicious. This is amazing. I watched the advert and all of that. And I believe what the man is saying on the advert. So I go in there, I taste it. And I'm like, hmm, this is good. This is nice. So when somebody comes and says, oh, hi, sir. I say, oh, it's really good. Why am I saying that? Because of my personal. Come on, speak to me. Because of my personal. That's right. So out of our personal experiences, we've come to believe the Bible is the word of God. And that is a valid proof. It's called the practical test of experience. Until something happens to you. So the caution there then is when something now happens, if your personal experience of God's goodness is now challenged 
by a situation in your life. Say, for example, you have an unpleasant experience. Maybe you lose somebody that's very important to you. You believe God is good. God is, God is great. God is awesome. God is kind. God is good. God is always good. You know, even in Pentecostal circles, we say, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. So we believe that. Then suddenly, maybe one of your, your loved ones, you see Christians, something they were not expecting, so maybe something like that happened. Maybe you lose a loved one, or you lose something dear to you. At that point then, what do you do? Because your only premise that the word of God is, the Bible is the word of God, is that God is good. It's based on your experience. Now that your experience temporarily has changed, do you still believe the Bible is the word of God? So you now see what happens to Christians then is that once they face a challenge, they look at the Bible differently again. Then suddenly, of course, they begin to say to themselves, really true or have I been scammed is this something a fraud have I been taken for a ride now recently as some of you know we've had very high profile Christian leaders recount or renounce the faith particularly in the music industry they just wake up on me and say well sorry I, I can't believe this again the reason why that happens is because the strong foundation was never there. It only took one little thing to tip them off. So they had an experience they could not square. They couldn't square their personal experience with what they've been hearing about the, from the Bible. God is good and all of that. They couldn't square their personal experience right now with that. As a result of that, because of that dissonance in their mind, they say, well, you know what, let me resolve this by saying that one is not true. My experience is true. And for some, some, some those high-profile leaders that have renounced or, and, and went off, there are many more that are still sitting inside church on the pews, on the seats inside the church that are disconnected from Christ. They're only coming because of the community and also some are coming because they proclaimed this Christianity for many years they don't know what else to do they don't have all the friends that they had 15-20 years ago they told those ones I'm a Christian now I go to church I'm a church girl I'm a church guy those ones have laughed at them for 5 years and they left them and said well go with your conviction now that conviction is not as strong as they felt it ought to be but they can't go back to those ones they can't go back so they, got, they say, come, they sit on, this, on, the, on the church chair, and the people, they're looking at it and say, well, so unfortunate I've been scammed. <laughs> yeah, people actually feel that way. And you could tell, the confidence is not there. They feel disconnected from God. So we've got to resolve this once and for all. So let's look at the reason number one. Why is the Bible the word of God? This is the top reason that you will get in any Bible college, in any theology school, why the Bible is the word of God. And this is the first reason. The Bible is the word of God because of its unique revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Along the lines of these teachings, you are going to, I'm going to, one of the topics we're going to come across is the topic called Jesus and the Bible. And you will see how incredible. You can never accept Jesus Christ as a good teacher, as a moral leader, as just a prophet. You have to either accept all of the claims of Jesus as who he says he is, the God-man, or you have to reject all of the claims of Jesus and, that say, to, and say to yourself, he's a lunatic. You can't be anywhere in between. There is no other religious book that makes the kind of claim that we see. No other book contains a revelation of a God-man that is extraordinary, yet so simple in its presentation. Okay? There are about 5,000 religions in the world. And all of them teach, except if you want to call Christianity a religion for the purposes of this conversation right now, except Christianity, every one of them teach on 
what you have to do to get to God. What you have to do to get to God. What you have to do to be accepted by God. What you have to do to please God. Christianity is the only one that turns the whole thing upside down and says, this is what God has done to reach you. So while you join other religion, they tell you, these are the seven things you have to do, five things you have to keep doing for God to be happy with you. Christianity, you come to Christianity, Christianity tells you, this is what God has done because he's happy with you, because he loves you. And he, he came down to be like you, to be like me, so that we can be like him. This unique revelation is only in the Bible. Now, why do they call it, why is it called unique revelation? It's called unique revelation because if you have a book like this that billions of people believe in and you make such an extraordinary claim, all it takes to just destroy the whole book and the whole faith is to disprove that one man that everything hangs on. Do you agree with me? And this has been going on for thousands of years and nobody has been able to disprove the claim that this one man, this God man, Jesus Christ, came to do. So let's look at it now. I want to show you something here in a minute. You see, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, right? Talking about Jesus being the God man and the word became flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14. Then in Matthew 1, 20, 20, Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 to 23, it says, Look at verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So a virgin is going to be with the child. That's the human being. That's the man. But is also God with us. So Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Only Christianity claims something like that. Because of the unique revelation of Jesus Christ, the Bible it's the word of God. Now listen, the revelation of the person of Jesus, this is very important. Please pay attention to this part. The revelation of the person of Jesus Christ has these three characteristics. It is, number one, inclusive. It is convicting and exclusive. When you look at this statement now, it looks contradictory. So pay attention. It is inclusive and exclusive. How can something be inclusive at the same time, exclusive. So I want to prove that to you now. This is a unique, that's why it's called the unique revelation of the person of Jesus. Stay with me. So let's look at it first. Let's start with the inclusive. The Bible says in John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him, that's where we get the word inclusive. Christianity says it does not matter your background and it does not matter what you have done. There is no pre-qualification to be a Christian. There is no, absolutely no pre-qualification to be a Christian. Whosoever, the same way a person that has lived their life or morally to a large extent since they were born, and a person that has lived their life so dangerously, prostitute, drug addict, all manners of things. The same way both of them come forward to be saved, same day, same way Jesus will save both of them. No, no preference, no pre-qualification. Come as you are. Whosoever believes in him shall be saved. God the Father sent Jesus to everybody. Are you with me? Yes. Come on now, are you with me? Yes. Alright. So it's inclusive. Okay, that's the good part. It is also very convicting. You see, it says, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Now, for you to test this statement, this statement is so powerful and so true. This John 3, 18. is so true that that is why the Bible is a statement book. You see, this Bible, if somebody is doing something wrong, they're not Christians. Even if, and if they're Christians, or if they're not Christians, and they see the Bible, 
just looking at the Bible without opening it, just the idea of the Bible, automatically they're already feeling convicted. Even if they don't know what is inside the Bible, there is a convicting power about the Bible. There's an aura of conviction around the Bible. That is why today you find a lot of places in Northwestern Western world, they've taken the Bible out of school, they've taken the Bible out of, uh, out of the courts, they've taken the Ten Commandments out of the courts, and so on, because of the convicting power of those statements. If you stay in the place you want to kill somebody, your mother, and you're just looking at a tablet of the Ten Commandments that says, thou shalt not kill. It's not, it's not audio. It's not video. <laughs> it's just what you would think is mere words that just says, thou shall not kill. You go, maybe you're loitering in front of somebody's house, you just say, thou shall not kill. Oh, we go back again. So, he has a convicting power that for some reason, by the time you've looked at it once or twice again, you, 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 want, to, you want to either shut it down and walk away. The convicting power is convicting. And this is the part that many Christians struggle to see. The Bible, the claims of the Bible are very, very exclusive. The Bible does not give room for access to God through any other means but Jesus Christ. So while Christianity is inclusive, everybody should come the way they are. Jesus died for everybody. Christianity is also exclusive. Nobody is going to dictate their own terms to reach God. The Bible teaches that there is no other way, no other way through which man must be saved except through Jesus Christ. So the concept of, I believe one part, I believe God is love, ultimately we have to understand that Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. Are you with me? It's inclusive in the sense that it's open to everybody. It's exclusive in that it's so narrow. It says you have to do this to be able to receive what God has put in place. You can't come up with your own idea. You can't come up with your own conditions of it. You can't modify it. You can't change it. This is what it is. It is what it is. You take it or you leave it. And God is comfortable enough. He's very secure in himself if you reject him. That's what Christianity is telling you. Christianity is telling you, it's okay if you don't want to do it. This is the standard. This is what it is. You don't have to be. You take it or you leave it. And Jesus told us we must be born again. And we get born again. There's no other name given on among men. Truth must be. These are, these are extraordinary claims, particularly when you study other religions. These are extraordinary claims. Now, let me give you reasons number two, quickly. Don't worry, I'm not going through the ten reasons today. So, <laughs> I won't do that to you. Or right, I've tried my best to simplify it. Reason number two is this, and I love this. The Bible is unique in the sense that the unity of its message from the different human authors. There's no other book, whether in secular literature or in religious literature, that has the same level. Let me show you, for you to understand the extraordinary nature of the Bible. The central message, and please write this down if you're, if you're writing, uh, write this down. The central message of the Bible is redemption. That's it. Redemption. That's the central message of the Bible. So, I know I want to jump a little bit now. When we get to the point where we're going to talk about interpreting and understanding, understanding and interpreting the Bible, the central message of the whole Bible that runs across the whole Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation is about redemption. Just stay with me. The central personality of the Bible is the lamb. The lamb. You see the lamb from when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, and God came and covered them with the skin of an animal. Correct? Covered them with the skin of an animal. You see how an animal was killed to cover the this, sin. This that went all the way to Revelation, where it says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. All the way from the beginning to the end, the central personality is 
animals, the lamb, the blood, which was a which is a shadow, a type of the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 36. Are you still with me? All right. Okay. Now, this is also very important. The structure of the Bible. If you read the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, you you begin to, if you pay attention, you begin to see that there is actually a commonality in terms of the structure of what happens to the Bible. And look at these four things. Pay attention. This is very important because these four things go through the Bible from time to time. The first thing is in the structure is that you will see sinfulness. You will see man in a sinful state. Is that a man has sinned against God? Man has gone away from God. He's gone astray. Then you will see judgment of the sin. God always judges sin. Oh, this is in scripture. Even if they are his people, they sin, there will be judgment over that sin. Then you will see repentance. The people, in the, as part of the judgment, God will give them a message to say, if you repent, this is what's going to happen. And when they repent, you will see restoration. This is the structure of the Bible. So the children of God or anybody, will, there will be sinfulness that will be identified. In that sinfulness, God will warn them. They don't heed to the warning. God will bring judgment. When he judges the sin, there's a message, hope for repentance. The people that repent, there will be restoration. Are you following me? This is the structure of the Bible. Now, just even at this point, immediately now, I can tell you from this point, if you read your Bible, if anybody tells you that they've read the Bible and that God is okay with sin that, and that at the end love wins, it's not this Bible they read. Because God always judges sin throughout the Bible. And he always gives the room for repentance. And when people repent, he always restores. This is the structure of the Bible. And this structure is consistent. And you will see that I've told you, the message, the central message of the Bible is what? <laughs> the central message of the Bible is redemption. The central personality of the Bible is the Lamb of God. And this is the consistent structure in the Bible. Now, this is what you're going to These are these are facts. Now, these facts are there. They're indisputable. Even people that are atheists, they don't dispute these facts I'm going to be sharing with you right now. The Bible was written on three different continents. This is how you know. This, this, is, this is an extraordinary thing. This excites me a lot. It's completely extraordinary. There's no other book in antiquity. There's no other book in literature, in secular literature or any religious book that has these attributes. None. The Bible was, and these facts, these are facts. These facts are indisputable by everybody. The Bible was written on three different continents. It was written by different authors over approximately 1,600 years. Listen, the Bible was written from 1440, 1,440 BC, before Christ, all the way to the last book, which is Revelation, around 100 AD after Christ. Approximately, that's about 1,540 years. So in theology, they say approximately 1,600 years over that long period. Are you with me? Okay. And these are facts. The Bible were written, was written by about 40 different authors. This is amazing for me. Various backgrounds. So in the Bible, kings wrote, Solomon wrote, Solomon was the king when he wrote. Lowest of society wrote, Amos was a goat herd. He wrote the book of Amos. Solomon, elite, the prince, born of a king, grew up in the royal courts, became a king himself, he wrote. Judges wrote, prophets wrote, Lawyer wrote, Apostle Paul, doctor wrote, St. Luke, illiterates, people that didn't go to school, they were not educated, well educated, unlearned and untrained men, fishermen, Peter, he wrote, 
All of these different people wrote, and the Bible still has one same common message that runs throughout the whole thing. The Bible is written over 55 generations of human beings. That is why the Bible applies to everybody. It is the only book in the world as it is, as it stands like this. This uh, a Bible, this is a, an NKJV version of um, Spirit-filled Bible. Or, oh, sorry, this is the Life Principle Bible uh, by Chester Stanley. I just wanted to use this for an illustration today. This Bible, the way it stands right now, from it, you give it to a child, they will read stories from it, and they will be blessed. Do you agree with me? You give this, this, this to a postdoctorate fellow, they will also read it and get something out of it. It is simple in its message, but infinite in its depth. So the Bible, in theology, they describe it as a fountain. When you go to a fountain, like all those fountains where you see the children drinking water from across in the lobby, the fountain, when you go to the fountain, the fountain is the same. But the water running from the fountain is always fresh. This part is not on my slide, but this is important. It's also part of the reasons why the Bible is the Word of God. You see, when you go to the Bible, and you take the Bible, and you want to read the Bible, if you've been reading this Bible for 50 years, let's say Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me to lie down in green pastures, all right? You've been reading that for the last 50 years. The Bible is the only book that no matter how many times you've read that, you cram it in your head. When you go to it, you will still find something in it that will still bless you. Now, now, in theology, this is called simplicity and infinity. Don't worry about the technical terms. I'm going to explain it. The simplicity of it is that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's simple. The infinity of it is that every time you go to it, you still find something. So that tells you the simplicity part is the one that was written by man. The infinity part tells you that there's a God behind the man. So that's the dual, dual authorship. The Bible was written in different locations stretching over 2,000 miles from Babylon to Rome. Babylon 650 miles um, east of Jerusalem. Rome, about over 1,000 miles west of Jerusalem. The Bible, Paul wrote from Rome. Ezekiel wrote in Babylon. Okay? And still, like I said, the unique mess, the message, the unity of the message that still runs across is still exactly the same. Okay? The Bible was written when people were in different situations. There were people that wrote from prison, like Apostle Paul, and there were like people like Solomon that wrote from palaces. There were people that wrote when they were very, very happy, and there were people that wrote when they were very sad. But everything still has the same thing. That is why it's so interesting that as a believer or as somebody, you keep on picking your Bible, you are at the highest of your joy in life. You go to the Bible, you will find something that will help you to celebrate that location. Oh, that men will give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his mercies endure it forever. You find something that will help you. If you are going through a situation whereby it's so tough for you right now, you go to the Bible, you will also find comfort. There is hope for a tree, even when it is cut down. There is always something in that book to meet every situation because the people that wrote it were in every situation. With all this, over 1,600 years, about 40 different authors from different backgrounds, written in, over, in, in three continents, over 55 generations, nevertheless, there is still unity in his message. There is no clash in their point of view. That points to the fact that while all these different human authors, they, they, they never, Moses did not meet Ezekiel. Ezekiel did not meet Apostle Paul. They don't know each other. They wrote from different places. And you have to understand that. By the time they were writing, the Bible had not yet been put together as a book. 
that we know now. So what we know now as the Bible, we're going to talk about that when we talk about why is this 66 book. What we know now right now as the Bible, called, the process is called canonization. What we know now as the Bible, it was not yet there. Ezekiel wrote his own. He was not aware. Paul wrote his own. He was not, they, just, they wrote their own. They wrote, but they all came together. They're still saying the same thing. Now, the amazing thing also is that when Isaiah, for example, when Isaiah said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. For the virgin shall conceive and give forth a child. And shall call his name Emmanuel. When Isaiah said that, Isaiah told us a virgin shall conceive. But Isaiah did not tell us where that child will be born. Then Micah, Micah as a prophet in history, was a contemporary of Isaiah. In other words, Isaiah was a prophet at the same time that Micah was also a prophet somewhere else in another, in another part of the kingdom of Israel. Micah told us in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that um, Bethlehem, you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one that will be ruler in Israel. Who's going forth are from of old, from everlasting. So he's born today, but he didn't exist today. Micah is the one. So, in other words, you need every book of the Bible to put together the whole mosaic picture, to have a complete picture. If you take one book out, you will have missed something out of it. So let me jump by saying, so some of you that don't like, if you've not read the book of Zephaniah, if you've not read Nahu, then you don't, you can't have a full understanding and appreciation of the Bible. Stay with me. So the unity of this message points to only one author behind everybody, and that is God himself. Give the Lord a big round of applause at that point. Okay. Now, reason number three. This one will interest many people that are... Uh, this, this, this fascinates me personally. This one will interest many people that are giving to saying, all right, I've, I've heard everything you said, but can we get external confirmation outside of the Bible, external confirmation that the Bible is the word of God? So this, if, you, if you're that kind of a person that needs something external to the Bible to confirm that the Bible is the word of God, pay attention to this part. Number three, why is the Bible the word of God? The evidence of the fulfillment of prophecy the evidence of the fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible has a well-documented, accurate record of the fulfillment of prophecies about people, about nations, about events, and much more. About people, nations, events, and much more. I'm going to run you through a few of them in a few minutes. The people Pay attention to this part. This is the fascinating part for me. The people, the nations, the events the Bible predicted many years before they happened have been now clearly documented in history books after they've taken place. So in other words, this is the Bible. The Bible has predicted some things here. Many, 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 many years. We found this in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls what is called the Destiny Scrolls. We find this in what is called the Septuagint, which is the Greek, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, which took place long ago into the Greek language. And the Bible predicted all of these things that is written there. And later on in history, hundreds of years later, specific, and I will show you right now, they've now documented in history books that have been taught in secular history of what has happened that the Bible predicted long ago. Are you with me? Are you ready for this part? Are you ready for this part? I, I personally, I, perhaps because I'm someone giving to this kind of things, I, I like this part a lot. So let's look at, we're going to look at, there are usually four things in this place. The prediction of people, people, the prediction of what will happen to nations, okay? the prediction of the Messiah himself, but I've left that part out, will deal with that part on his own. Okay? Because that's, that's very outstanding on its own. The prediction, let's start with the picture of people. The first one is Cyrus. Cyrus was mentioned in the Bible one, by name 100 years before he was even born. 
Now, the existence of Cyrus has been proven in secular history that it is true he existed as a person and his name was called Cyrus. And the exact thing God said he would do in the Bible is what he did. And that has been well documented in secular history. Are you with me? Yes, sir. Isaiah 44, verse 26 to 28. Look at what God says concerning Cyrus. He says, who says of Cyrus? Because of our time, let me get to 28. Who says of Cyrus is my shepherd? In other words, is my leader. I've chosen him. He will perform my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So after the destruction of the temple and all of that, Cyrus was the man that allowed the children of Israel to go back and do exactly this. And that's documented in secular history. You know, God said the same thing in Isaiah 45 verse 1. He said, God says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. Mentioned his name 100 years before the man was even born. The second one is a man called Josiah. Josiah was also, Josiah was um, the 16th king in southern kingdom of Israel. Documented in secular history. His name was predicted 300 years before he was born. In 1 Kings 13 verse 2, God says, the scripture says, Josiah by name, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priest. He was talking to the altar, the priest of the high priest. So in the southern kingdom, it is recorded in secular history that Josiah was the 16th king of the southern kingdom called the kingdom of Judah. Let me move quickly. <laughs> Are you getting something from this? Let's, oh, this part is one that fascinates me the most. I love this part. The prediction about nations and cities. Oh, I love this. Let's look at about two or three of them. Babylon. The fall of Babylon was predicted. While Babylon was the capital of the most powerful nation on earth, the Bible predicts that Babylon will fall. Not only that they will fall, ah, I love this part. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19 to 22. It says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldean's pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. Now, let me say something to you. This is what is called a categorical statement. All that anybody needs to prove that the whole Bible is fake is, to, is for Babylon to be rebuilt. No book will, this is really stretching out your, putting your neck out there. I mean, this is putting the whole skin in the game. You roll the whole dice. You're telling me that if you say in Babylon, let's look at it, let's look at exactly what it says. You know, if you're a serious student of the Bible, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldean's pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he said, it shall never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. Now, if Babylon is not inhabited or settled, what happens to the whole Bible? It is because <laughs> the one that said it is the one that controls nations. And this was when Babylon was in glory, was the capital of the most dominant nation, and God said it will fall. It didn't look like it at that time, but it did. It did. All right? Let me, let me, because of time, I'm watching all, going through all of this. I mean, the slides are, are there for you to see anyway to have. Let's look at this other one. The downfall of Nineveh was predicted when Nineveh ruled the world. In Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, quickly just stay with me. God said, he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. Then he goes on to tell us what's going to happen to the Navy. Okay? And that's exactly what happened. But this is the one that really, really is amazing to me. The city of Tyre. Now, when you read in the Bible, you, talk, you see what is called about Tyre and Sidon. This one is something you can easily check out. The destruction of the city of Tyre was predicted not only predicted that it would be destroyed, it was predicted that it would be thrown into the Mediterranean Sea. Ezekiel 26, verse 3 to 6, and Ezekiel 26, verse 12 to 14. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord. You see, the Bible is claiming that this is God speaking. Now, if this does not happen, then the entirety of everything is gone. He says, I'm against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you. Now, notice what he says. It's not only one person that will finish, that will start, that will finish and start finish the job. It's many. He said, I will cause many nations to come against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her doors from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. In the midst of the sea. Stay with me, stay with me. Stay with me. This is very interesting. God says in Ezekiel 26, 1-14, He says, I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets. You shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord. Now, was this prophecy fulfilled? Many, many years before Tyre was destroyed. Let me show you the fulfillment of that prophecy. This one particularly interests me. Nebuchadnezzar. This is in secular history. He destroyed. You know, he said many nations have come. He came against the city of Tyre. He destroyed it partly. But in the year 330 BC, Alexander the Great, the king of what is called um, Macedonia, which is in modern Greece, he came and he took the pillars of that city, exactly like God said, and cast it into the sea to make a causeway to reach an island where they built a fortress. Exactly the way God said it. Alexander the Great existed between 356 BC and he died in 323 BC. This is in history. This is history. This is not, this is not Bible now. I'm telling you things in history that happen that is supporting what the Bible predicted will happen hundreds of years before it happened in history. Give Jesus some praise at this point. The Bible is the word of God because there's no other religious book that stakes its claim and its credibility on the fulfillment of prophecy. No. But the Bible says it's written through human, by God, through human authors, and this is exactly, I mean, if, if I'm going to say something, I should hedge my, if I, I will hedge my risk a little bit. That, you know, if I was going to be the one to write it, I would say, Nineveh, you're great among nations, be careful. <laughs> be careful because something might happen, we don't know, something might happen. So if something happens, I would say, did I not tell you? If something did happen, I would say, I said might. But no, God said it will happen, it will never be rebuilt. Hundreds of years. And if I was going to predict, I would say, Cyrus. What about if his mother did not call him Cyrus? What is this? When I called him another name, I called him Chuma. What happens? What happens? Why will you, why will you mention his specific name? But he mentioned the specific name 100 years. Josiah, 300 years before. The only book that does that. No other book even pretends to start that. The Holy Bible. In conclusion for today is the word of God because of his unique revelation of the person of Jesus Christ because of the unity of his message from different human authors and because of the evidence of the fulfillment of prophecy celebrate God celebrate God come on celebrate Jesus honor Jesus come on Honor him. Magnify his name. Give him praise. Give him praise. Thank you, Lord. You deserve the praise, Jesus. Come on, is somebody celebrating Jesus for a minute? Jesus, we honor you. Jesus, we honor you. We celebrate you. No one like you. Blessed be your name. Thank you that your ancient walls has imparted us. Glory to your holy name. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name. This is the point where normally in the days when people see used to carry Bibles around like this, you hold your Bible and say, I believe with all of my heart that this is the word of God.
I believe it with all of my heart. This is the word of God. It is accurate. It is credible. It is authoritative. It is the word of God. Thank you, Lord. God wants me to talk to you and declare over you and for us to pray for pleasant surprises to happen even this week. For somebody here, your song would be, I didn't know you could favor me this way. The testimonies you are going to hold in your hand, you'll be saying to yourself, I didn't know you could favor me this way. Quickly, I'm not preaching again, but just remain standing. Genesis 43 to 34. The Bible tells us about the set of people, the brothers of Joseph, that went to Egypt because there was no food. And when they got there, Joseph saw them queuing up in the famine for food. They didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And Joseph looked at them. That is Genesis 42 verse 8, by the way. And Joseph looked at them and said, these are my brothers. And signaled to his own servants and said, you see that one? Yeah, that one. Yeah, that one. Yeah, and that one. Yeah, and that one. And that one. And he picked out all of them and said, set them in a place by themselves. And said, take them to my house. They should not be on the queue here. They are my own people. With my blood, the same blood we share. They are my brethren. And the, here, my brethren, he said, Here I am, and the children you have given me, we are for signs and wonders. So these people are for signs and wonders, they just don't know it. So he called them and took them home. And the Bible says, When they were going to eat, he set them in such a way that when the men looked at each other, they were astonished. That, ah, Something is happening here. This cannot be a coincidence. The way this arrangement looks, it's like a coincidence, but it's not a coincidence. Nobody's telling us something, but it's not a coincidence. You see, that's what's going to happen to you this week. God is going to make some arrangements for you that will look like a coincidence. God will make some arrangements that will look like a coincidence. If you believe it, let your amen show you believe it. If you believe and receive it, let your amen show you receive it. Listen to me. What you believe is what you are permitted to manifest. If you don't believe it, then you can't manifest it. I speak over you again. What will look like mere coincidences, but there will be the blessings and the arrangement of God. They will start happening to you from this week in Jesus' name. And the man looked in astonishment at one another. That's what you call pleasant surprises. You know, there are testimonies you, you get. You look at your best friend, at your wife, at your husband, at your children. The children look at their parents. And you are trying to look for an explanation in the natural. But there is no explanation that they can give you because you are surprised. They are surprised. Everybody is surprised. Their testimonies will surprise you. Your testimonies will surprise your family. Your testimonies will surprise your friends. It will surprise you. It will surprise your pastor. It will surprise the brethren. It will surprise your church. It will surprise everybody around you. It will surprise your enemies. Let your amen be resounding if you receive that. There's something even more powerful happen. The Bible said it now took five servants to them. Normally, please pay attention. Benjamin is the last born. Reuben is the first born. He now took five servants and they put it in front of Benjamin. Five times as much as everybody has. Reuben has only one. So, okay, before I thought this was a divine arrangement that from the first born to the last born. Now it's looking like these people made a mistake. Oh. They're thinking that Benjamin is the first born. But it was not a mistake. Because the end of the matter is better than the beginning. The first can be the last, so that the last can be the first. Listen to me. God is about to cross his hands. The same way he crossed his hand and released the blessing upon Ephraim, the man has said he's about to cross his hands. 
What did I just say? I said God is about to cross his son. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ does for us. The one that did not deserve the blessing, the crossing of the hand that Jacob did when he was going to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. That Jacob did. When Joseph brought Ephraim and Manasseh to him, he set Manasseh up on his right hand side and set Ephraim up on his left hand side so that he can just do this. But the man crossed his hand. Signifying the cross that when the cross of Jesus Christ comes, it is now whomsoever believe. How we are born and the position in our family is not what matters anymore. It's the position of the cross. For somebody here, the cross of Christ will speak for you this week. The cross of Christ will speak for you this week. You are not the first to apply, but you'll be the one to get a job. You are not the first to apply, but you'll be the one to get a job. You might not be their favorite candidate, but you'll be the one to get a job. Oh, say a big, big amen to that. Listen to me. The blessing of Benjamin is the blessing whereby people will look at you and say, How? I know you don't deserve it. And you will tell them, I know myself. I'm not the firstborn. I'm not the first. I'm not the second. I'm not the third. I'm not the fourth. I'm not the fifth. I'm not. It should not even reach me. But guess what? It reached me. Oh, somebody, it reached me. Somebody shout, it has reached my hand. Oh, say it again, it has reached my hand. This, listen carefully, is the blessing of Benjamin that God wants me to pronounce upon you. Genesis 35 verse 18 and please listen very carefully to me I'm about to pray for you right now I have no doubt at least seven people I said at least, at least only seven but at least seven people to confirm that God sent me by this Sunday that is coming this will be your reality in Jesus name Bible says something concerning Benjamin. You saw that you got some extra. And the Bible says that when the mother was dying, when the mother was about to have her, have him, and the mother was dying, the mother called his name Ben Oni. That's what the mother called his name because of the circumstances surrounding his birth. Keep going, please. But his father changed her name. Listen, there are names, circumstances have called you. If he was still Ben Oni, he would never enjoy the favor he enjoyed. It was because that name was changed and the name was only changed by a father. I, I hope somebody is hearing what I'm saying now. I'm about to pray for you now. I'm about to declare this over you. Whatever your situation has called you, I stand here today under apostolic authority that Christ has placed upon my life and I declare over you, it is changed to a joint here in Christ. Benjamin, Ben Oni means son of my sorrow. Benjamin means son of my right hand. Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and we're joined here with Him. I stretch forth my hand over you right now, wherever you are, and I declare over you this week begins pleasant surprises galore in your life. God will turn around your captivity this week. Your testimonies will surprise you this week. It will surprise you this week. From places, from angles, from cities, from nations, from people, you are not even expecting anything. You will receive good news. Divine orchestrations that manifest as coincidences that will further your destiny, that will advance your purpose on earth, begins from this week to be your portion. Oh my God, let me say that again. Divine arrangement that will look like coincidences. Ruth went out to glean at the edges of the farm in Ruth chapter 2 and she happened to come to the vineyard that was belonged to Boaz. What a coincidence, but it was divine arrangement. I pray for you what you will call a coincidence, but that is a divine arrangement that will advance your destiny, that will manifest the goodness of God in your life. From this week, it begins to happen in Jesus' name. Someone said to Saul, he said, when you leave me in this today, he said, you will go. He said, the donkey said you have been looking for. He said, don't worry about it. That donkey has been found. Then he said, you will meet three men. 
He said, one of them is carrying bread and wine. The other one is carrying the young goat. He said, they will meet you. They will greet you. And they will give you. Meet you. Greet you. Give you. Meet you. Greet you. Give you. Now, when Samuel said that, listen to me. When Samuel said that, even if Saul, on his way home, decided to take a shortcut, those people that he has been told, that have been told, will meet you. They will take shortcut also. Because they've been commanded in the realm of the spirit to meet Saul. I pray for you now. Whoever will do you favor, they will meet with you. They will meet you. You will no longer be hidden from death. You will no longer be hidden from death. Your gates will not be shut. Your days will not be shut. It shall be open day and night. That men may bring unto you the word of the Gentiles. In the name of Jesus. I can hear your amen in the house. No case is ever closed before the Almighty God. I speak over you. Even the case you have closed is now in the hands of God. Ah, may God surprise you with a pleasant, pleasant testimony this week. May He surprise you with pleasant testimony this week. May He surprise you with good news this week. In the name of Jesus. By the time it is all said and done, listen to me, look at me. I speak to you as one called by God. I say over you, based on the authority of the word of God, by the time it's said, all said and done, you will never be put to shame. On that issue, you will not know 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 shame. Instead of your shame, you will have double honor. If I were you, I would really say amen to that. So it gives me great pleasure to let you know God will surprise you this way. Come on, say that to yourself. God will surprise me this week. Oh, say it to yourself. God will surprise me this week. God will surprise me this week. Come on, personalize it, personalize it, personalize it. Take it in, take it in. Take it in, take it in. This is the end of the message. We are sure that you have been blessed. For more information, please visit our website at www.houseofpraise.ca. God bless you.